Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have a very, very special guest. Many of you may know the name of Vladimir Karamurza, a filmmaker, a journalist, and a leading Russian opposition figure. During this time of, uh, of conflict and in light of the, the invasion of Ukraine, I believe it is so important that we work to magnify the voice of the Russian opposition, demonstrating uh, that our quarrel is not with the Russian people, rather it is, it is only with the Putin regime, and that uh, we, we believe in, we hope for a new Russia that embraces freedom and democracy and lives at peace uh, with its neighbors. And one of the brightest lights pushing for this new Russia is Vladimir Karamurza. He's a great hero of the push for freedom and justice in Russia. Now, Vladimir Karamurza has faced multiple assassination attempts. He is currently in prison uh, in Russia on various trumped-up charges. Uh, and we're very honored today to have his wife, Yevgenia Karamurza, joining us to talk about her husband's work. Uh, about uh, the the current situation, the invasion of Ukraine, and also about her hopes for the future of Russia. So, Yevgenia, thank you so much for all you're doing and for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me here. So, uh, we first connected uh, when you when you came to Canada and spoke to the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and you gave powerful testimony there. And we'll we'll aim to uh, link to that testimony uh, in the in the description of this podcast, so people who want to uh, read what you told Canada's Parliament and and uh, hear more can find it on there. Um, I thought it would be worthwhile to start just asking about kind of your life with with this person who's known throughout the world for his heroic courage. Vladimir Karamurza is 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 is, is such a an an honored name, someone who continually went back to Russia. What's it like to, to be married to someone like that and to, to, to engage with him on his work? Tell us just a bit about, about your life together. Well, it's being married to a Renaissance man is not easy, of course. I mean, he's a historian, a journalist, a politician. There are so many facets to him. Uh, but throughout it all, he's first of all, a person of great personal integrity. And this is what I respect and admire most about him, his honesty, his integrity. And although uh, life with the Russian opposition politician in today's world is not always easy and there are many dangers and risks associated with that, I wouldn't have it any other different, any different because I am uh, very lucky to share my life with someone whom I deeply love and respect for everything that he is, you know, for, for who he is. So it's both easy and difficult. He's an easy person to live with. He's an amazing guy, kind, considerate, respect. He has uh, a lot of respect to his, um, to whoever he talks to. He's uh, honest. He's extremely intelligent. Oh, so smart. So he's very easy and pleasant to live with, to share your life with. But at the same time, of course, I know that all his qualities make him into who he is and make him into this, into one of the strongest opponents of the current Russian regime and of Vladimir Putin, because uh, Vladimir, my husband, rejects absolutely everything Putin stands for and this regime stands for because of his honesty, because of his integrity. Mm-hmm. That the integrity point is is going to really stick with me, and I think with our with our listeners as well, because the the association, I think the strongest association people have with the Putin regime, uh, aside from its violent nature, but is is the dishonesty, the way that it it repeatedly tells 
outrageous lies that are that are obvious to everyone are lies nonetheless become a kind of party line and so to to be a person of integrity in a country where the regime is is most known for its dishonesty is a uh, is a real sign of contradiction isn't it i guess it is but then again an honest person will stay honest whatever the circumstances right mm -hmm. and in russia there are many such people uh, yes a lot of them are now in prisons all over the country. An incredible number of them were forced to leave the country because they were fearing persecutions, because they were trying to save their kids, because they believed that they could do a better job from outside of Russia. I'm talking about a countless number of journalists and human rights activists. But I, I do believe that an honest person will remain honest no matter the circumstances. If you know that you're standing up to something as atrocious to as Putin's regime, does it mean that you need to begin lying? To, uh, it's, uh, I know what you mean. It takes courage. Yeah. It takes courage to stick to your principles. It takes courage to maintain that integrity, to speak out, even though you know what might, what consequences you might face. But I believe that this should be the goal to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, we should all strive to be always the better version of ourselves and to strive to remain honest and independent in our opinions, no matter the circumstances and no matter the risks. Mm -hmm. And this is why I couldn't be prouder of Vladimir for sticking to his principles, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the risks that he's faced over the years, um, despite two assassination attempts against him. He still refuses to leave his country because he believes that you cannot equate the regime to the entire country, to the entire people. And he knows that there are millions of Russians who reject this regime. And so he believes that he needs to stand with them and share the same risks and the same challenges faced by Russians back home. So what, what really stuck out to me about what you said there was integrity. Many people's associations with the Putin regime are, are foremost about its dishonesty, the fact that it, it pushes out outrageous fabrications and lies that are obviously so. And uh, it must be particularly challenging to live as a person of integrity in that kind of an environment, given the whole system marshalling itself, pushing behind whatever the, the lie of the day is. You're absolutely right. It is extremely important for the regime to silence all the voices who contradict the official narrative, all the honest voices uh, of all those people who refuse to be intimidated and continue opposing the regime. I think that it should be our goal for all of us to strive to maintain integrity and honesty despite circumstances. Although I do realize how frightening it must be at times and uh, I, I don't believe that my husband has never had any fear you know he's a, he's a normal human being it's not about being afraid or not being afraid it's about understanding that there comes a time when something more important than fear emerges and you need to stand up to defend your principles otherwise it will all just collapse and uh, such regimes as uh, that of uh, Putin, of course, rely on fear. Sort of, th that is the, the, the foundation of the regime. Uh, that fear that they instill in people by intimidating them, by showing to them what would happen to them if they only begin to oppose that. 
So everyone who has the courage to stand up and speak the truth under the circumstances, I think shows a great example to others and such people should be heard. And uh, this is also why I continue my husband's work because I know that the regime is trying to silence these people by throwing them in jail. Mm -hmm. So I need to become my husband's voice and the voice of all those Russians who have been thrown in jail since February for speaking out, for telling the truth about the atrocities that the Russian army is committing in Ukraine and is committing in Russia against its own population. So I, I need to speak up on all of their behalf. That's powerful. Thank you. Uh, that's, that's also a good segue into the the current events we're dealing with, there were multiple assassination attempts on your husband prior to uh, February of this year to the to the further invasion of Ukraine. Nonetheless, I think there's a sense that I have and and that you've spoken about in the past that 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 things changed further in Russia following uh, the invasion of of Ukraine. So could you tell us a bit about since February, uh, how has the climate shifted in in Russia? What uh, what is the regime doing differently in terms of its its uh, domestic approach that align with its its foreign aggression? Well, it is very hard to underestimate the level of aggression that that the regime is using against uh, its own population. There is complete censorship of all independent media. Basically, the the media space, the independent media space, has been purged, cleansed. There is nothing left. The three remaining independent media outlets that were available to the Russian population, TV Dost, that only operated online, Echo of Moscow radio station and Nova Gazeta have all been either closed down by the government or forced to suspend their activities trying to protect their employees. Those journalists, um, most of them, have left the country to continue their work from outside. The uh, Russian authorities have blocked over uh, 100,000 media outlets, smaller media resources, online media resources. They access to uh, media platforms such as Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter has all been blocked. And Russians can only uh, Russians inside of the country can only access these uh, uh, social platforms by installing a VPN service. And uh, of course, not everyone realizes what a VPN service is. I mean, in bigger cities, uh, people have access to internet, and they uh, know, of course, they're more the tech savvy. Let's say, in Russian regions, if you leave bigger cities and go into the regions deeper into the country, there is no internet access. So the only uh, source of information to these people has been their TV for many, many years. And uh, the, the last uh, major independent TV channel was closed down by Putin in 2003. So that's 19 years of propaganda. But even uh, since February uh, the 24th, the, the level of uh, aggression through propaganda has been raised as well. And uh, uh, before this full-scale invasion, the regime in Russia was uh, characterized as uh, authoritarian, which means that uh, there was this sort of uh, political demobilization of society. People were encouraged not to participate in politics. 
and different obstacles were, um, of course, created um, for those who wanted to um, access um, politics and then uh, be elected, let's say, and uh, represent some part of society. So that since the full-scale invasion, um, the uh, situation in, in Russia shifted in the way that uh, it is the regime is changing uh, very rapidly from an authoritarian into a totalitarian one. And that is characterized by um, the use of ideology. So the um, political mobilization of society that is seen in, in schools, for example, where patriotic classes are being introduced into the school curriculum. Uh, there is a tightening control over education. There is censoring textbooks. There is uh, this uh, widespread militarization of children. And, uh, um, and an information war designed to mold children into loyal, militarized nationalists. And that political, political mobilization of society is uh, uh, seen everywhere uh, throughout every segment of life. And um, of course, mass repression is completely mind-boggling. Arrests are ongoing arrest of protesters who go out in the street to say no to the war to uh, or those who try to spread information about what the russian army the, the the war crimes committed by the russian army on the territory of ukraine and all the crimes committed in russia as well all these people are getting detained and arrested since february uh, independent monitoring organizations like Overday info uh, have already reported over 19,000 uh, arbitrary detentions across the country. There have been over 4,000 administrative cases and uh, around 400 criminal cases, uh, including against my husband, initiated against people trying to protest in any way against the invasion. Uh, these uh, cases, most of these cases are being initiated under the new legislation introduced in early March that uh, targets any kind of anti-war dissent. Uh, these are laws uh, that uh, criminalize the spreading of uh, truthful information about the government's policies in Ukraine, about the war crimes committed in Ukraine. And uh, this was actually the first case against my husband. Uh, the, the first case, and uh, there are now three cases against him. So the first case, against him was for, uh, as the government calls it, spreading knowingly false information about the use of Russian armed forces in Ukraine. So basically for his uh, public speeches, denouncing the war and denouncing the war crimes committed by the Russian army there. So the situation is rapidly deteriorating because uh, the regime realizes that in order to continue warmonging outside of the country, they need to squash any kind of dissent inside of the country as well. So they, uh, I can say that the current Russian regime is leading two wars at the same time. One is against Ukraine, in which the, the Russian government tries to completely, it seems, erase Ukraine from the face of the earth, committing those atrocious human rights crimes and just bombing civil infrastructure and committing the genocide of the Ukrainian population. And the second war is against Russian civil society. Around 1 million people have left the country 
uh, since February, fearing persecution, fleeing from the country, um, taking their kids and fleeing. Over 19,000 arrests across the country show that there are probably millions of people who are against the war as well, but just are too afraid to speak out. Thank you for that very vivid description. I think a lot of people struggle to explain this distinction between authoritarian and totalitarian, and you did it so crisply and and so well. Authoritarianism being about kind of demobilization of political activity, encouraging people to stay out of the political space and using various oppressive techniques to do that. But then totalitarianism is this aggressive, forced ideological mobilization. Would you describe this as, as fascism? Uh, the the ideology that the Putin regime is using? Uh, Well, it certainly has a lot in common with the fascist regimes and uh, in the way it approaches dissent in its own country and in the way it acts towards independent nations outside of the country. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the distinctions people make also between authoritarian and totalitarian is the presence of institutions. The, The Chinese system, for example, it has a a political party, the Communist Party, that seeks to to be present and integrate itself at at all levels of uh, uh, at all levels of society. In the past, the Russian regime has been described as 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 not characterized by this kind of institutional presence. It's more been about a kind of a small number of figures at the top trying to exercise a lot of control. Are we seeing kind of totalitarian institution building within Russia uh, right now, or uh, or not? Social institutes in Russia have been completely dismantled over the years. Uh, The system of checks and balances is non-existent. Every branch of government is uh, completely under control of the Kremlin. So there is no independent media, no independent justice system. Uh, Parliament is just a rubber stamp that that adopts any laws or any uh, initiatives that come down from the Kremlin. And uh, of course, there is now only one narrative, and that is the state narrative that is allowed in the country. Anything and anyone who contradicts that official narrative is seen as either a criminal or an insane person, and we can judge by by the uh, cases uh, against um, those um, arbitrarily detained since February, there, there is a number of cases in which uh, people after spending a certain time at, in pretrial detention were transferred to psychiatric hospitals for, uh, for so-called evaluations during which these people were tortured and injected with unknown substances, which means that we are witnessing the revival of punitive psychiatry that was used in the Soviet times against dissidents. And that shows that the the government wants to represent, to portray anyone contradicting the official narrative as either a criminal, like my husband, who has now been charged with high treason for speaking out publicly against the regime and everything it stands for, and for calling for more sanctions against those criminals of the regime or uh, insane people, like those uh, activists uh, or journalists who uh, were sent to psychiatric hospital and thus portrayed as somehow insane. So in the midst of this violent crackdown on on dissidents, we are seeing nonetheless uh, protests, especially since the the mobilization order. Uh, We're seeing people leaving. 
Uh, is there a way of, of quantifying the level of support that your that exists for your yours and your husband's ideas? And um, what can those people that are, are mobilizing uh, or, or, or that even that hold these thoughts in the privacy of their own heads, what can what could they do to actually bring about uh, the political change in Russia that, that we're hoping for? Let me begin by saying that it's even hard to assess the state of health of Russian society in the absence of free independent media, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, free and fair elections, freedom to run and be elected. All fundamental freedoms have been taken away from the Russian population. So in, in this situation, it is very hard to assess the actual state of mind of people in Russia. But uh, continuing protests point to that people are still prepared to voice their dissent. They're still prepared to go out and say no, even though they know what they will face afterwards, what kind of consequences they will face afterwards. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, if we talked about this uh, uh, legislation uh, um, adopted in early March uh, to squash all anti-war dissent, people can go to prison for 15 years for, go out, for going out in the street with uh, a slogan that says no war. That's it. You can be sent to prison for 15 years for standing in the street with a slogan that says no war. It is quite clear that the regime is using uh, all these measures to squash dissent and to silence all the voices uh, uh, of opposition. In the absence of all these fundamental freedoms and uh, knowing that the restrictive measures used against them are beyond imaginable sometimes, people are finding other way to protest. Protest in Russia becomes, you know, partisan movements are growing across the country. There have been now, I believe, around 70 conscription centers and official buildings that have been set on fire since February. Mm -hmm. uh, trains are being derailed. People sign up to, um, to uh, fight uh, on Ukraine's side. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's just, so people are finding ways to protest. Uh, but of course, these ways, will become increasingly violent uh, if people can't find any other ways to protest, any other relatively safe ways to protest. And uh, the setting of conscription centers on fire and the derailing of trains already shows that in the absence of peaceful ways to protest, people will find ways that are more violent, but they will still continue protesting. Um, and in order to, I think, encourage protest in Russia, those um, who uh, oppose the regime need to feel solidarity of uh, the Western democratic world. I think that a message of solidarity uh, from the West would be crucial here because um, democratic countries could uh, um, say to those Russians protesting or maybe considering that um, um, possibility of protest, that they see a difference between the regime that has been committing all, the, all these crimes and the people, uh, civil society, and that uh, it is the, the uh, 
the Putin regime and all those who have been aiding and abetting the commitment of all these crimes who need to be brought to justice. And these crimes have been committed against the Russian population as well, because uh, we all know that uh, what we're witnessing today is the result of over two decades of impunity that Vladimir Putin has enjoyed while oppressing his own population and committing other crimes uh, on, on the international stage. For years, he's had his opponents murdered, both in Russia and on foreign soil. And um, uh, for years, he's been breaking international law by invading Georgia, by leading the war in Chechnya, by annexing Crimea, by bombing Syria. So of course, uh, he believes in his warped mind, Vladimir Putin believes that if he can go and annex Crimea, it is only natural to expect that he can annex the rest of Ukraine, right? If he can bomb a uh, civil population in Syria, why can't he do the same in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. So that is the result of over two decades of impunity that he's enjoyed, and that needs to stop. And for, uh, for years, I mean, for years, this regime has been stealing from Russian population and using Western democracies, uh, Western banking systems, Western financial systems to hide this stolen loot. And to, so they were, uh, they were violating the rights of Russians while enjoying the privileges offered by the Western democratic world. This impunity mm -hmm. has to stop. So, uh, of course, I believe that uh, the only condition for a real change is uh, for this regime to fall. The collapse of this regime is the condition for a change, because if um, Vladimir Putin is somehow allowed to uh, freeze this conflict, to freeze the war, uh, the war in Ukraine, it does not mean that the war will stop. No, it will not. The regime will just regroup and attack again. And if it's mm -hmm. not Ukraine, they're going to attack Moldova, one of the Baltic states. Vladimir Putin has a big choice in that region. So the only condition for a change for peace and democracy in Russia is the collapse of that regime. This is why um, everyone I talk to, I, uh, every politician I address, I talk about uh, the need to help Ukraine, to continue helping Ukraine. I um, say how important it is for Ukraine to not just get enough weapons to maintain the status quo, but to get enough weapons to actually win the war. This is why I talk about uh, the necessity for more sanctions, both economic sanctions that will cripple Russia's economy further and make it costlier for the regime to continue warmongering and targeted sanctions that would um, both freeze those assets that have actually been stolen from Russian population over two decades and send a very powerful message of solidarity to Russian society, to Russian civil society that uh, the democratic West sees a difference between those committing the crimes and Russian civil society. And they will go after those committing the crimes by freezing their accounts, by banning them from ever going to Western countries. And I also talk about the um, 
the importance of uh, showing support and solidarity with Russian civil society, with that part of Russian civil society that continues opposing the regime, both inside and outside of the country. All those journalists uh, whose work is crucial now in countering propaganda, all those human rights activists and human rights organizations whose work is crucial in monitoring the situation in Russia and raising awareness about mass repression, use of torture, use of punitive psychiatry in the country, and mm -hmm. uh, support and solidarity with all those protesters inside of the country who go out in the streets, uh, putting themselves at risk and pay with their freedom uh, for um, their for defending their principles, for saying no to the war, for saying not in our names. Mm -hmm. I, I want to pick up on your, your point about sanctions. Uh, it seems to me that for a long time, the, the West really failed oppressed peoples of the world by allowing stolen money by, by oligarchs in, in various countries, Russia and others, to come into the West and, and use that money to buy up fancy properties and um, and benefit from the freedoms that exist in the West, but to use money that was stolen from, from people facing oppression. And in response to that, uh, there has been the Magnitsky sanctions movement, uh, which is to, to stop this, to say that, that, that uh, corrupt officials from Russia, but also from Iran, uh, from Venezuela, from other countries should not be able to steal from their own people and then benefit from the, the freedoms that exist in the West by traveling and, and, and bringing their money there. Vladimir has been a, a big advocate of, of Magnitsky sanctions. Some of us in the Canadian Parliament are saying that our government uh, hasn't used these tools enough. Could you speak specifically to the, the Magnitsky sanctions movement and, and its importance for the Russian opposition? The Magnitsky movement, the Magnitsky legislation is important not only for the Russian population, it's important for the entire world because it brings to accountability those committing gross human rights violations in their countries. And uh, Vladimir, it's true that Vladimir has been involved in this advocacy for over a decade. He began, he got involved in uh, 2010, Sergei Magnitsky himself, uh, who was Bill Browder's uh, lawyer in Russia, was um, uh, murdered in a Russian prison in 2009. And uh, Vladimir got involved in this advocacy for the introduction of the Magnitsky legislation and Magnitsky sanctions um, in 2010. And since then, he's been an adamant advocate for the introduction of uh, sanctions against criminals uh, of the regimes committing uh, gross human rights violations against people. The reaction of the uh, Putin regime to the introduction of uh, such legislation by different countries, I think is best seen, is best seen in the way they target those involved in this advocacy. Vladimir began this work together with Boris Nemtsov, a, a prominent Russian opposition leader who should have become Russia's next president uh, instead of Vladimir Putin, honestly. Um, the country would have been completely different had he been able to do that. Um, well, Boris Nemtsov was assassinated in 2015 on Moscow's Bolshoi, but Moskoreysky Bridge. And I'm sure that his assassination 
he was targeted because of his involvement in the for the introduction of Magnitsky uh, legislation over, all over the world. Vladimir continued this work. Only three months after Boris's assassination, Vladimir was poisoned for the first time. He was lucky enough to survive. He relearned how to walk and he went back to Russia and he continued his work advocating for the introduction of uh, targeted Magnitsky sanctions. In 2017, he was poisoned again, and again, he survived and continued his work. So what I, um, I'm trying to say here is that uh, the regime sees people involved in the advocacy for such sanctions as personal enemies, and it targets them, trying to eliminate them, physically eliminate them. We know that uh, both um, assassinations, uh, assassination attempts on my husband were carried out by a team of FSB operatives whose only job is to physically eliminate the opponents of Putin's regime. So it means that uh, the, the government is using a team of assassins to target uh, the opponents of the regime. To target those involved in the for the involved uh, in the advocacy for the introduction of sanctions, for example, the Magnitsky legislation has already been adopted worldwide by uh, 36 countries, and uh, I do believe that the number of countries will only grow because uh, this is honestly a revolutionary legislation. Uh, it targets human rights violators. And it brings them to accountability, depriving them of those privileges of the free world that they're trying to enjoy while um, um, violating the, the uh, laws, violating the rights of their own citizens back home. So I believe that it is very important to continue this advocacy and I'm trying to do my best to continue my husband's work while he's in prison and cannot do it himself. Yeah, thank you. That's that's very powerful. And I want to mention to our listeners that I think it was it was about a year ago now, but I did an interview with Bill Browder on this podcast talking about uh, about uh, his book and about Magnitsky sanctions as well. There have been been so many great and heroic people that have been involved in this Magnitsky sanctions movement throughout the world. And I think we really have a responsibility as people blessed to live in, in free nations to, to not allow ourselves to be uh, places of safe haven uh, for, for persons or their money uh, who are involved in, in oppression in other parts of the world. Uh, that's that's the the least we owe to our our brothers and sisters around the world who aren't uh, who don't have the same uh, same opportunities that that we have, and I uh, I very much affirm your call for for this movement to continue to grow. You, you you were you were in Canada recently, as I mentioned. You spoke to the Foreign Affairs Committee. There there's been a push in Canada from some quarters to see more use of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, we have a private members bill uh, right now before before Parliament that uh, seeks to strengthen the Magnitsky Act by creating a parliamentary trigger by allowing members of, of committees to to sort of effectively nominate people for Magnitsky sanctions and require the government to to respond. Uh, that bill will go to a vote, you know, and and be studied at committee and so forth. I, I wonder if you could um, if you could share specifically in the Canadian context. You spent some time here. Uh, what what are you looking for from Canada as it relates to support for your husband and uh, support for the Russian opposition? While I was in Canada, I had a meeting with uh, Minister Jolie, 
And I was very heartened to learn that Canada would be introducing sanctions against those involved in my husband's case. Those uh, judges, prosecutors, police officers uh, who have been implicated in my husband's unlawful detention, prosecution, arrest, etc. And I believe that such sanctions, they send a very powerful message of solidarity, not just with my husband, but with all those oppressed in Russia, because uh, this gesture shows that all those implicated in similar crimes will be put under similar sanctions. And uh, so I was, uh, uh, I'm very grateful to uh, Canada uh, to, to lead, uh, to, to have become the leading country in adopting sanctions uh, against um, those implicated in my husband's case. And I believe that th this is what I would ask uh, for, the same kind of gestures in other cases, uh, the same principles stand with regard to Putin's regime, uh, the same understanding that uh, there is a difference between the regime and Russian civil society that opposes this regime. So this is uh, the, the uh, kind of solidarity and uh, support I'm looking for. Again, I want to say how grateful I am to Canada for being very strong in, um, but by sending uh, this um, um, message of support in, and solidarity. I should mention as well, during your visit, we had a debate in Parliament about special measures to support refugee status for human rights defenders from Russia who are looking for somewhere to, to come to and, and be able to, to magnify their message from. And of course, as, as we talked about, there are many of those who choose to stay, but there are others who think they can be more effective um, uh, continuing their, their journalistic, civil society, and political work from, from outside of Russia. So uh, we have had these kinds of statements from, from our parliament. I think, I think it, it's, um, it can be maybe challenging, but very important to frame the conversation the right way in the midst of, in the midst of a, a war uh, to say this isn't about opposing uh, the Russian people or or Russia as a nation as such, but it's about opposing the regime. Um, you know, statements in Parliament, statements from individual politicians. Uh, how can we how can we um, uh, really put that frame in in the right focus that um, that this is about the Putin regime and that um, the, you know I, I I take note as well just of you saying just how important this this message is for the Russian people to be able to, um, to, to know that this message is being sent. Um, how, how, how do we go about doing that in the most effective way? Um, well, when we talk about uh, journalists and human rights activists, uh, we need to understand that uh, Putin realizes quite well that propaganda is one of his uh, most powerful instruments. Uh, to influence not only the Russian population, but also the West. Um, and this is why uh, also he tries to squash any kind of dissent in Russia, because he tries to uh, show to the world like the entire Russian population stands behind him and his war in Ukraine. And of course, countering propaganda is extremely important under the circumstances. Vladimir Putin uh, puts billions of dollars into propaganda. And in order to counter propaganda, journalists, independent journalists need to be able to continue their work. Um, this is why uh, 
and a countless number of journalists uh, left the country since February because I, I believe they understand that they can do a better job from outside of the country. I mean, what, who is, what use is a journalist in prison? He cannot continue his hugely important work. So, of course, uh, in order to be able to continue producing um, an independent informational content for the Russian-speaking public, um, uh, journalists need to be journalists need to be free, and they also need to be able to continue uh, working. They need uh, platforms. They need uh, financial support to to be able to uh, produce this informational content and made it and make it available to the Russian speaking population. And um, I can tell you that the number of VPN services installed in Russia since February is skyrocketing which shows that there is a very big demand for independent information. Um, so that uh, it, it shows how important the role of independent journalists is. Um, same goes for uh, human rights organizations and uh, uh, civil uh, society activists. Um, their work uh, remains important in supporting grassroots movements in the country uh, the work is important in monitoring the situation in the country. Um, and uh, uh, I think, and they also need platforms. They also need to be able to continue their work. Um, and I believe that, um, well, it's, um, you see, I already said that I believe that the only condition for a change, a real change, is the collapse of this regime. The sooner or later, this regime will collapse. And Russia will, of course, be in ruins because uh, uh, the Russian economy is, uh, um, well, it, it is definitely affected by the sanctions and will uh, be even more affected with time. And uh, so then when the regime, the Russian civil society has been completely just split, I guess, um, uh, social institu institutes have been destroyed. Uh, there is no independent media in the country. The, the entire just the entire civil space is completely destroyed. So uh, when the regime collapses, the country will be in ruins, and someone will need to be willing and prepared to rebuild everything in the country from scratch and make sure that Russia does not go back to yet another authoritarian regime. Um, and this is why it is, I think, important to make sure that that part of Russian civil society that opposes everything this regime stands for somehow is able to survive these very difficult times. And this is why it is important to show solidarity with them because these are gonna be the people rebuilding the country from scratch. Um, and I know that my husband will be one of them. I, I know him. I mean, uh, my husband uh, spent a part of his uh, life in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, he finished school there and went to Cambridge. But the day he graduated, he packed his bags and went back to Russia because he said, the UK can do very well without me. It is in Russia where I can bring change. 
and uh, he um, refused to be intimidated after two assassination attacks on him. He continued his work on behalf of Russian civil society. So I know that he will be willing to undertake this hugely difficult job of rebuilding a country from scratch, from ruins. And he's not the only one. There are hundreds and thousands of such Russians and they need to feel solidarity of the democratic world of which they very much want to be part of. Yeah, thank you. I just want to pick up on the what you're talking about, about, about rebuilding Russia uh, into the future. Um, I mean, in recent history, you have after the um, fall of communism, uh, you have this period of, of attempted rebuilding, um, but so that was associated with a lot of of economic pain and instability, uh, and that led to um, this sense, I think, that that um, someone just needed to take charge, and that was kind of the. Um, but I guess there were economic factors that, that changed as well around the price of oil. Um, what is your vision for the future of Russia 10, 15 years from now, um, and how can kind of a post-Putin uh, uh, Russia avoid uh, the kind of challenges in th that existed in the '90s that kind of led to a um, that th that led to Putin's rise in the first place. I believe there was uh, there were a number of mistakes uh, made by then leaders in the early 1990s, uh, which uh, made it possible for someone like Vladimir Putin to come to power only 10 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, two of those mistakes were that, first of all, well, that is maybe not a mistake, just not enough time or not enough uh, of lack of knowledge because we'd been living uh, for over 70 years under the Soviet rule and uh, there was uh, maybe no complete understanding of um, how this should have been done, but um, a sustainable system of checks and balances were never actually built in Russia. And uh, so, so social institutes were never uh, strong, resilient, and sustainable enough to withstand the rise to power of someone like Vladimir Putin. But another mistake that was made, and, and that is definitely a mistake, was that there was no reckoning with the past. There was no denouncing of the crimes committed by the Soviet government. There was no realization by the majority of the Russian population of what crimes had been committed basically in their names. And I think that this is a mistake we cannot afford making again. This is why I believe it is crucial that um, there are trials after the collapse of the regime, the trials and those involved in committing war crimes on the territory of Ukraine, but also those uh, responsible for the crime of aggression uh, are brought to trial and are made accountable uh, for what they've done. And all those who have been aiding and abetting the regime in violating the rights of Russians and in committing huge crimes against our closest neighbors 
uh, they all need to stand trials and these trials need to be public, as public as possible, so that uh, that part of the Russian society that has been brainwashed by 19 years of propaganda and does not realize what is being done in their names uh, on the territory of Ukraine right now, every single day for, since February, so that they realize it and so that they learn to deal with it and they process it. Because I think that this would be the first step toward the convalescence of Russian society. Um, and as far as uh, Russia's future is concerned, well, I'm not, I'm not a politician. My husband would be a great guy to ask about Russia's future, uh, but I'm not a politician as I'm not gonna give you elaborate uh, programs of today's Russia. The only thing uh, I'm gonna say is that I want to see Russia, I want Russia to become a boring democratic country where parliament discusses budget matters instead of nuclear attacks against our closest neighbors. This is what I want for Russia, that's it. Um, yeah, thank, thank you for that. But I, 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 I will just pick up on, on that very last thing you said. How, how serious is the nuclear threat and how, uh, how worried should people, should people be about the possibility that, that nuclear weapons will actually be used in this conflict? Um, well, a nuclear attack, of course, is possible. Let's not underestimate uh, the craziness of Vladimir Putin. He's uh, insane. He is. Um, but we also uh, should consider, I think, the fact that um, the Russian regime uh, is also a kleptocratic one. Uh, those are people who have been stealing and stealing and stealing and the entire country has been just stolen, everything. Uh, this is why the Russian army is facing such um, uh, great difficulties uh, in Ukraine because the, 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 the entire, the, you know, the weapons they're using, the tanks they're using, nothing really works because it's all been stolen. The money that was allocated to the military sector has been stolen over time. So uh, we don't really know in what state nuclear weapons are today in Russia. Um, uh, that is one thing that we uh, need to consider. And another thing we need to consider is I think the fact that uh, Vladimir Putin is a classic bully. And this is, uh, mm, this is, also the reason why he's been uh, enjoying this kind of impunity because for years uh, he'd threaten with something and uh, uh, he would uh, uh, sort of scare his opponent into backing off and he would continue pushing and continue pushing and continue pushing. So I think that a bully will push for as long uh, until he stopped basically in order for uh, this to end, Vladimir Putin needs to be stopped. Because uh, if uh, uh, the Western world backs down with sanctions and backs down with pressure, fearing this nuclear attack, it only means that Vladimir Putin will continue his warmongering. It only means that he will return to that threat in several years when he decides to attack Moldova or one of the Baltic states. 
This threat will never be off the table for as long as Vladimir Putin stays in power. This is why he has to be brought down and brought to court. Yeah, um, to to totally agree. Uh, Evgenia, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, for your courage uh, and, and all of your advocacy as, as well as, as, uh, as your husband's. Um, maybe I'll, I'll share kind of what some of my key takeaways from our conversation are, and then I'll give you the last word if there's anything, anything you want to add uh, for our listeners uh, here in Canada and potentially in other places. Um, I want to salute the heroism of your husband, who is, uh, who is such a, a powerful example of, of, uh, of principle and integrity. Um, I think we're, we're hearing clearly from you and from other reports about how uh, Russia is changing and changing further in, in the context of, of the events of this year, moving from authoritarian to totalitarian. Uh, that is provoking a response inside of Russia. It needs to provoke a response outside of Russia. And that our, our support for that, uh, that emerging opposition response, it matters, it's consequential. And there are things we can do, statements of support, uh, targeted sanctions, but also broader economic sanctions uh, to stand with uh, the, the uh, Russian opposition and with Russian people who are, who are looking for ways to find their voice in, in the context of what's, what's happening, uh, that the regime needs to be defeated, civil society needs to be preserved as much as possible, and that that paves the way for a, uh, for a better future for Russia. As you talked about Russia becoming a, uh, hopefully at some point, a, a boring democracy, I was thinking a bit about, about Germany. Um, some of my own my own uh, background is Germany, and I've studied a lot kind of the, the history of the Second World War and the transition afterwards. I think a great example of a of a success story of a of a you know fascist uh, regime uh, being replaced by a, a, a normal, um, with all due respect, uh, boring democracy. Um, and but 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 I think you know the failure after the First World War was a lack of reckoning with the past. Right there was this sense after the First World War that Germany hadn't really lost, they'd just been betrayed because there was a lack of, of reckoning with the defeat and with, um, with atrocities and with other things. Uh, and then following the Second World War, uh, there were you know, the Nuremberg trials, there was, there was uh, more exposure, more reckoning, uh, and that, that, um, that exposed for the German people the evil of the regime that had been uh, ruling them and pushing propaganda on them for years, and that opened the, the door for change. So I think uh, looking to that historical example of what happened after the First World War in terms of the failure to reckon with the past and, and, the, and, the, uh, and the conspiracy theory of sort of a great betrayal, but then the Second World War and what came out of that uh, provides some, some valuable lessons for, for what, could, uh, what could happen next. Uh, so those are some of my, my takeaways. Thank you so much for everything and for the conversation. I'll leave the last word to you if there's anything you want to add um, uh, on top of what we've discussed and, 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 uh, and then we'll wrap up. Um, well, I think the only thing I could add is that, um, well, how my husband always says, internal repression will always inevitably lead to external aggression. Those two things are uh, very closely linked. And uh, uh, international law says that um, issues relating to human rights, fundamental freedoms, democracy, and the rule of law are of international concern and do not belong exclusively to the internal affairs of the state. 
So if there are uh, reports of um, violations of human rights somewhere, democracies have not only the right, but the responsibility to respond to that because uh, internal repression will lead to external aggression and that will affect us all. That affects the entire world. And I think that time and again, we've seen that um, happen. And Vladimir Putin has shown it yet again to the world that internal repression will always lead to external aggression in the most atrocious ways. And I believe that um, the democratic world needs to stand strong and principled in its response to Putin's aggression against Ukraine. And we all need to do everything we can to push from all sides um, and make this regime collapse because this is the only way to um, pave the path toward um, a free Russia, a democratic Russia that will make, that will ensure the peace and stability in that region. Evgenia, thank you so much. That is a powerful note to end on. Um, we wish you and your family well. Uh, we, we will continue to, uh, to call for the release of your husband, to fight for his release, to, to say his name in parliament, uh, and, uh, and, and to support those who are fighting alongside him. Uh, thank if you very enjoyed, much. Yeah, thank you. And just to <laughs> our listeners, you if you've enjoyed this episode, please, please leave a review. Uh, we publish every two weeks on uh, various uh, important topics uh, here in Canada and around the world. Uh, there've been, there's been a lot we've discussed today that I think uh, you, you'll find other episodes if you look back that will, that will link uh, to, to these themes. I mentioned the interview with Bill Browder. We recently did an episode on the situation in Iran. I think another lesson about the connection between internal repression and external, uh, external aggression. Um, so, so please take a look at some of those older episodes, leave a review. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and please share it. We'll be back with another episode of Resuming Debate in two weeks.